You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Whether you need a battery for your truck or a battery for your trail camera or a specialized battery for your rangefinder or a crazy toy that you bought for your kids, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. Stop into a local Interstate Battery retail store, talk with a specialist, get the battery that you need, and go on about your day. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 56, Jonah Curtis, Hunt to Eat, Live to Grow. Nick called up Jonah Curtis, a local homesteader, hunt to eat ambassador, and caretaker of an extensive garden. Jonah gives a look into how through years of working the land, he has been able to pull a large harvest and be able to preserve that harvest year-round. He gives some tips on starting a garden and making it productive. We also dive into his new partnership with hunt to eat and how his values align with this company seamlessly. This was a great episode to record and a fun time to be had. And surely, some great info to be gleaned. Just a heads up before we begin, I do want to say that I had some difficulty with my tech setup and had some audio quality issues. However, listening to the episode, you can clearly get a hold of what we're talking about. It's just going to be tinny. So, apologize up front for that, but enjoy the show. Well, hey, folks, welcome. Beautiful evening. We got ourselves a shot of rain. I know it has been super dry here in the great state of Michigan. Uh, And in fact, that leads me into introducing our guest this evening. Some say that he is a resident of the great state of Michigan, that he will soon be a father for the very first time, and that only a few times has he been misidentified as Bigfoot by weary hikers. (laughs) Tonight, I am joined by homesteader, food preservation connoisseur, and the new member of the Hunt to Eat team. I'm joined with Jonah Curtis, or as folks on Instagram know him as Musquatch. Jonah, how you doing this evening? Yeah, 
I'm doing awesome. How are you doing? I tell you, I can't be doing any better right now. The kids are running around. They just had bath time. They're ready to mm -hmm. go down. Uh, having that shot of rain just on, even I'm looking at my little garden set up, it just really helps when they're actually getting good rainwater as opposed to something out of the well. And I feel for like sure. they get for sure. they do much better that way. Um, but yeah, you have a little one on the way. Um, when is, when's this little person due? Uh, right before the whitetail rut. So October 24th is the due date. So, uh, uh, yeah, my wife and I have been married almost 11 years now and this kind of snuck up on us a little bit. Um, so we're obviously super excited about it. Um, I'm going to take two weeks off, uh, whenever, whenever this little rascal appears and baby stuff in the morning and whitetail stuff in the evening is well, that's the plan anyway. But yeah, October 24th. <laughs> awesome. Oh yeah, they take naps for most of the day anyway. So you'll have plenty of time to still get out there. <sighs> that's the plan. <laughs> we'll see what we'll see what mama says about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I don't want you to say what it is. All I want to know is are you guys waiting to find out at birth the gender, or are you are you ones that need to know and have the uh, the reveal part? Uh, we are waiting. We, uh, this whole thing has been quite a surprise. So we're rolling with the surprise. I, we will not be disappointed either way. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, whoever the little, little duffer is, I plan on having them strapped to me doing a lot of fishing, hunting, gardening, all my fun stuff. Good deal. Good deal. My wife is an extreme planner and mm -hmm. she loved the idea of the reveal parties. So all three of ours, we knew well before they came because yeah she wanted I mean when nesting took over for her I mean it took over everything she wanted everything in its place so unfortunately I didn't get to have that real surprise <laughs> of having it come out and know but at the same time we were we were still surprised with all three and how they turned out so that's been oh yeah surprise sure. no matter what you get so but yeah um that's exciting for you I'm glad to know that it's going to be mixed in um as far as taking them around getting into the fishing getting outside uh, as much oh, yeah. as possible. Um, Jonah, what do you do for uh, a day job? Uh, I actually have two day jobs, sort of. Um, so I uh, tend bar, um, part-time, very part-time, semi-retired at Schuler's Restaurant in Marshall. And I've been there almost 15 years. Um, it's where I met my wife. Uh, it's got a special place in my heart, so I'm there still one night a week. And probably will be for a very long time. Uh, but I also work at Oakland Hospital in Marshall. I work at a fitness center. I teach strength training and functional fitness. And then I run a community garden and teach gardening classes. This year that's been, uh, obviously the gyms have been shut down in Southern Michigan most of the year. So I, um, the hospital though asked me to do, come over and help out and do maintenance. Um, a borderline useful so I went and did that uh, for a few months, but it made it so I couldn't do the garden this year, uh, the community garden. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, but looking forward to next year. I've had a lot of people reach out about it. Uh, food security has kind of become an issue to some people, or the, the thought of it is more in their minds. So I think next year could be a bigger than ever year in the community garden and for kids' gardening classes. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great that you you bring that up. 
Um, even I want to say like knee jerk reaction. I think people here in March, as soon as they heard that things were going to be shut down and that food was going to be one of those things they had to worry about, there were people that were throwing in just immediate gardens at that point. I know we're, we live in the woods and I've got landscaping around the house. And one of my things this year was like, I'm not, why am I watering perennials that just look pretty that don't do anything for me? I wanted to in turn have my stuff work for me. I feel like a lot of people even this year had a knee jerk reaction to putting gardens just after that initial food security thing uh, went down. Oh, hundred percent for sure. I've gotten more DMs and texts and phone calls um, all through the, I mean, really the whole thing, like all the gardening stuff, uh, planting, um, and then how to harvest food preservation. Uh, one of the local libraries in Battle Creek asked me to do like a, an hour long how to plant a garden. So I did like a 10 by 10, just section out in my garden and said, here's a patch of soil and we're going to, we're going to turn this into food. And, you know, a, a library a year ago would have probably not, that would have not been on their radar to ask me about to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you tell people? They've maybe not done this ever before. They might have just a piece of piece of uh, lawn that they want to convert over. Uh, what's the best way to do that? Should we go rows or are you thinking grid? Should I make it bigger or should I stick to something smaller and more manageable? I'm a big advocate of starting small and building on your success. Uh, you know, I'll have people look at my garden and it's, it's pretty, pretty large. And well, I could never do that. Well, no, now you couldn't, but 10 years from now, definitely. And it's all just a matter of building on your knowledge and, and learning what works for you and what you like. Um, I, you know, the things that I like, you know, I, I grow an enormous amount of beets. I really like beets. My wife likes them. Um, so, but if that's not your thing, then me showing you how to grow beets is just not going to do you any good. So it's selecting what you want to do and what you're comfortable with cooking and just building out from there. And, and every year I try something new, some stuff works, some stuff doesn't. And, you know, I'll, I'll delete some things that I find I'm not really utilizing that well. But yeah, basically start small. There are lots of different techniques. You know, even if all you have is a patio, just potted plants or something like that. Um, but yeah, start small and go from there. Good deal. I know when we were in our old house, I had plenty of plenty of lawn space and I fell into the trap of, well, I did really good with this 10 by 10. So let's go 10 by 20. And then, well, I did all right with the 10 by 20. So let's now go 20 by 30. And pretty soon I'm I'm creating this basically jungle of weeds at that point. Stuff gets yeah. overgrown. I want to get out. I have the good intentions of weeding. And then I'll do it next week. Oh, oh, and now it's, now it's Jumanji. And of course, probably the ratio oh, sure. of, I was using straight up turkey manure on that. So it was definitely nitrogen rich. I had a lot of green yeah, tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing I'll tell people with weeding is you can do, uh, 15 minutes a day, or you can do 10 hours on Sunday. You know, if you keep up on it, it's not, it's really not that daunting. Just do it while you're having your coffee in the morning or whatever. But if you wait till the weekend or you wait two weeks, it will, you'll need a machete to do your weeding. And, and even from there, I try and, um, try and have as much, make it as efficient and easy on yourself as possible. So I'll do, um, 
row covers, things like that to kind of limit my weeding. And I'll do different levels of, of growth. So I'll do, um, well, I'll even plant clover beneath some, some things or I'll plant basil beneath my tomatoes to help, you know, kind of be almost a cover crop and, and just make it as efficient as possible. If you just have a giant garden that you have a lot of space to weed, you're gonna do a lot of weeding. But there are ways to help yourself out with that. I love that idea of layering out, like having a basically a ground level cover that you want there. Mm-hmm. It's going to suppress the weeds that you don't want there. You know, you get your crack grass that moves in, you get your your field grasses, and to be able to stifle those down with, like you said, basil or clover. And with something like yep. that, you're even looking at something that's a long term process. An idea of thinking, I'm going to turn this soil over and put seeds in it and then harvest come fall and have that be a window that you pay attention to your garden. That's, that's real small thinking. When you're thinking about your garden, you have stages where it's basically you put the, put the whole garden to bed, but at the same time, you still have steps and things that you're doing each part of the season. What does it look like when you're, when you're putting it? Yeah, what does that look like, say, after harvest? I know we just did done harvest. What are you doing to put that bed to bed? Sure. Um, so I'll pull as many of the plants as are, uh, as I can, as are um, non-toxic. So some of the plants are not good for all animals. But So I have chickens, goats, uh, well, pigs, and rabbits. And I'll feed as much as I can to whatever stage of animal. You know, the, the rabbits are a little bit more sensitive, but I can feed them a lot of the, the stems and plants. And then goats and chickens and pigs. I mean, pigs can eat anything. Uh, and the goats and chickens are pretty durable too. So I'll feed them as much of the scrap as I can. Um, and then I take their, actually, I just unloaded, uh, cleaned out the rabbit pens today and got a little bit of load of manure. And so that will go on the beds when I put them to bed for winter. And it just kind of sits there and cooks down over the winter. And I do a minimal till in the spring. I'm not no-till, I will turn it over. Um, But that's basically all I do to put it to bed is pull everything that's up and put a little bit of fresh uh, rabbit and goat and chicken manure on there and let it kind of cook down over the winter and and then till it in. And there's some things like I put garlic in, well, I'll be planting that here in about three or four, well, more than that, probably eight weeks, I'll be planting garlic, and uh, and that will grow, well, it'll lie dormant through most of the winter, but then it'll start growing in the spring. But I also have a greenhouse that I built um, in ground, so gardening never really, really stops for me. It's a, like, in-ground, basically ground-level greenhouse, um, and I can grow in there all winter long, barring uh, a severe polar vortex that I have to fight, but I can at least grow some green leafy Swiss chard, beets, stuff like that all winter long. Gotcha. The, the hardy leafy stuff in the, in the right. greenhouse you're talking. That's so yep. cool to even think that you're even putting stuff in the ground. When we think everything's shutting down, you're throwing down garlic. Isn't horseradish one of those, or does that just get harvested in the wintertime? Isn't that one of those uh, tubers? that you plant in like the winter time and then harvest in the winter time? Well, I planted it in my neighbor's ditch like 10 years ago and now it's invasive. No, I didn't really do that. But <laughs> um, 
It's uh, horseradish. I don't really plant it anymore. It is kind of invasive. It was actually here on this property before I even came here. And so I just dig it up. It's kind of in one of the fence rows. So, but yeah, you can, you can plant that and kind of harvest it year round. If you leave any of it in the ground, you'll have horseradish again. It's a pretty oh, durable. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was an invasive. See, now that, that helps uh, me I, out. I, invasive might be pushing it, but they say the best place to plant horseradish is in your neighbor's yard. So you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> well, I'm a big horseradish fan. That's that's one thing that oh, I don't yeah. eat. So it's like, oh, shoot, maybe I'll have to grunt them to your neighbor's fence row. <laughs> <laughs> well, say you're on the property now, and you said you got a qu quite a large garden. How long have you been at your said property? How long have you been in your homestead right now? So I have been here um, about 13 years. So it's actually um, my mother, father-in-law lived here and they had um, a mother-in-law house for um, one of their parents uh, on the property. And when my wife graduated from college, she came back and was living there. And then I wooed her and uh, eventually moved in. We've kind of added on, done some stuff. Um, so I've been here now, yeah, about 13 years. My, my in-laws were working this property um, uh, for probably 25 or 30 years before that. So it's been, it's been a growing process. Uh, I brought a lot more of a, they had a lot of stuff going. I brought a lot more of the permaculture uh, principles to it, which is a full edible landscape, um, you know, stuff, stuff going all the time. And I, that's one of my big things. Um, I, so I grew up similarly to that in Northern Michigan. Uh, my grandparents lived on the same property as we did in a you know, separate house, same situation. And that's a big part of it to me is that uh, all hands on deck kind of work style really makes a, a lot of the stuff like people are see all my canning on Instagram and they're like, how on earth do you do all that? Well, I do all that because, you know, we have, there are four of us really that can pull some weight and do our own little jobs around here. And we don't live together, but we work together. And, and that's kind of, you know, my principle on that is uh, working with your family or whatever your, your circle is really makes things work out a lot better. Yeah. And I think that's something I, I even know that like folks that I've talked to on just when you're starting stuff, especially in a permaculture situation, it's, it's something that you have to look at the scale and time. Like this, you said this was worked mm -hmm. several years before you even showed up. Now you brought more of a permaculture to it. But again, that's, it's still been, like you said, you've been living there 13 years. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and have this whole edible landscape at your disposal, or you're going to be able to do that set foundation even in one year it's going to be several years that you're going to have to be working at that um when you're laying out your yeah property, for sure and okay go ahead well i was just just to your point that's that's exactly right and um i try people find that the the daunting aspect they say you know it's just so much to do i'm like yeah but you can do it over 20 years you know, if you want an apple pie 20 years from now, now is the time to plant an apple tree. It's <laughs> scary, but it's actually, it's actually should be comforting that you don't have to do all of it right now. You know, in the last couple of years, we really expanded our blackberries. And, you know, if looking at it now, we're getting a lot. And in five years from now, we're going to be getting, we'll be having a lot of blackberry wine around here. 
but it's just a slow process of, of adding a few more, propagating a few more. And now we have a ton, you know? Mm -hmm. I think the other thing people are daunted by is like, when you're pulling that, you're pulling all this year's stuff and you have those, you were showing pictures on your Instagram of all those cans of stewed tomatoes. And then you had, um, I think you had some blackberry or so no, it was grape juice. You had grape juice all grape squeezed juice, out. Yeah. That is, that's your year's harvest. That's going to be not just this year that you planted it, but everything that you're going to be consuming in 2021. That's what we're, you're putting oh, yeah. on the shelves right now. And I think people are, they look at this and they're like, shoot, I got all these tomatoes, but I don't know what to do with them. I feel like I'm trying to eat all these tomatoes, give these tomatoes away. I feel like I'm wasting it. But at the same time, this is a bounty that you're going to use throughout the year. Much like the deer that you get, you get basically a year's worth of meals in a couple critters. You're putting that in the freezer. You're preserving that. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the biggest thing I think people are daunted with and would love your expertise is on that preservation piece. Um, how many different ways of preservation do you use? I, we've seen the canning. Do you utilize freezing? And I think like a root cellar, is that something you use as well? Yep. Yep. So I have, uh, I have a root cellar and I do quite a bit with that, especially, I mean, at the end of the year, um, you know, put potatoes, apples, uh, I'll put a bunch of tomatoes in there and they'll ripen in there in the darkness, just wrapped in newspaper. They ripen very well. Um, uh, lots of squash, things like that. And that's in ground and it does, it does pretty well. Um, I do a lot of freezing and vacuum sealing, especially with, um, with berries, uh, peppers, things like that. Um, I'll dehydrate some things, not, not a ton. Uh, on my dream list is a freeze dryer, uh, astronaut food type of freeze dryer, but they're, I mean, they're, they're three grand. Uh, that's, I was just going to say, that's a uh, full investment on one of those. Yeah. Yeah. That's pushing it. Uh, I'm going to need to, uh, well, if you're buying mountain house meals, I could make those, but I would need to go, uh, out West hunting, uh, about a month a year for 10 years to, to pay off, uh, one of those freeze drying to make my own meals. Exactly. The, uh, the Musquatch dry freeze would probably be about $15 a pouch maybe even $40 uh, a pouch. <laughs> yeah. It'd be, it'd be high dollar stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you're not just, yeah, everything's just not shoved in the freezer at that point. Everything's just not going into cans. Um, you know, you, you diversify what you're doing. And again, that's going to take somebody when they're just, just getting started, it can be daunting. But if we jump in on the canning, um, you're doing obviously a hot water bath. Uh, what, what type of canner are you currently using right now to do the sealing on your, uh, on your cans? Or are you using the self-sealing cans? So I use both hot water bath and pressure can method. Um, pressure, can, pressure can intimidates a lot of people. Uh, I mean, it's essentially having a you know, pressurized bomb in your kitchen or whatever. I do mine outdoors uh, with propane in my outdoor kitchen. I just have a little three propane stove top that works really well. They're cast iron, but I do both method methods. It, it essentially depends on what you're canning, um, the acidity level and sure content, things like that on the safest method. And, and that's the most important thing with, with 
um, with canning is the safety aspect. A lot of people are a little afraid, well, and warranted, uh, no one wants botulism. But if you kind of follow Book of Oil and pay attention to what you're doing, it, it really is, it really is a very safe way to preserve food. Um, I know that it must be very popular this year because cans and or jars and lids are uh, a hot commodity everywhere I've seen. I use reusable lids that are actually made in Reed City, Michigan. Um, and those have worked pretty well for me. Some people struggle with them, but I find they work pretty well. Most lids are single, or uh, yeah, lids are single use. But yeah, so I, it, it depends on the acidity level. Um, I do probably more pressure canning because I'll end up doing, like I'll do soups in the fall and winter and chili, things like that. And anything with, basically anything with a meat product, it doesn't have enough acidity and you have to pressure can it to make it safe and shelf stable. Gotcha. And that can then last years if done correctly. It sure can. Um, again, like the official book of Hoyle is, you know, some uh, six months to a year, 18 months. I recently ate a, not that I fully endorse this all the time, but <laughs> I recently ate a uh, five-year-old uh, can of chili that had filtered to the back of my pantry. Um, and that was like two months ago. So I think any lasting effects would be evident at this point. And I am still, and it was actually, honestly, it aged really well. It was like, it was like a bourbon, you know, it has just oh aged better God. and better. I was gonna say from the from the zoom that I'm looking at you right now, you look like you're pretty healthy. It's a little grainy footage, but oh, you yeah. look like you're yeah. doing well. <laughs> just just fine. So that's awesome to think you, you're you're setting up a pantry um, with your dry, with your um, dried stuff, dehydrated stuff. What kind of things are you dehydrating? Um, mushrooms for sure, and I'll do quite a bit with. Um, I, I like some dry well sun-dried uh dehydrated tomatoes are two of my big ones and then i do i do a ton of jerky and then i can't forget my the three most important things in my household my dogs so i do a lot of dog treats also um and it's essentially i mean it's really just it's human i would eat it i wouldn't feed it to anybody i really like but it's basically <laughs> just venison jerky with low salt and uh no spices but i would totally i in fact i have eaten it um but yeah uh tomatoes are my big one um i do uh well actually my i shouldn't say i do my wife does uh meatloaf with layers of dehydrated tomatoes heirloom tomatoes in there and the flavor is just fantastic Venice meatloaf with those dehydrated tomatoes they really pop there's um the, the flavor just gets condensed and it just really opens up and it looks beautiful too because there's you know some of them are pretty a pretty good spectrum of colors so those are kind of my main things that I dry until I get that sweet freeze dryer. Yeah, yeah. In the household, what's mm -hmm. the split on cooking? You versus the missus, what is it? Uh, you know, it's pretty seasonal. Um, she is a teacher. So in the summer, she probably does a little bit more. Uh, I do more on the weekends. And I really like to do it in... Like during hunting season, I would say it's like 90% her because I'm not home till after dark, like every day. Um, but January, February, March, April, like early spring, um, I probably do the bulk of it. We both love to cook. It's not really like a – dishes are always a chore. No one likes doing dishes, <laughs> Nobody both of us like to cook. No, no. But we both love to cook, and we both kind of like to, you know, mess around and mess with new stuff in the kitchen. So there's – yeah, it's it's – I would say throughout the year, it's 50-50, but 
in each given week or month, it can vary quite a lot. Gotcha. Who organized the kitchen? Did you organize it for your your feel and your taste, or did your wife set it up for you? Um, I would say it's mostly organized around my function. So I, when I first uh, moved in with her, we had a, or she had a dorm mini fridge with like ginger and mustard in it. And that was basically it. <laughs> and so she's very, very patient with all of, I mean, she loves having all these foods that, you know, we produce together, but they're, you know, they're, they're my fault. Um, but she's very patient with all of that, but, um, we work together on kind of how to set up the kitchen. I do the organization of the organization, if that makes sense on where things will go. But ultimately, like we were just discussing where we're going to put all these jars, uh, or crates of, uh, of quart jars and how to organize the pantry. And, uh, we had different ideas and, uh, hers won. So, you know, it bounces around, it bounces around a little bit, but. Hey, sometimes you got to give up those minors, you know, let her have those and then you can stick to the majors. All right. That was going to be my segue. She's a very patient woman. Because in the organization of my kitchen, I'm, I'm usually wrong. I do put things in odd places, mainly because I'm like, this looks like it should fit here. Totally not supposed to go there. So (laughs) I've been kicked out outside into Whoa. Uh, my <laughs> yeah i mean i still i still utilize the kitchen it's definitely <laughs> set up towards her like her feel and i need to adapt but my realm is now into my outdoor kitchen i just completed the roof got the tin on there and now begins kind of the fun part of where i'm going to be able to put counter space um be able to build in uh the gas grill to have that a little bit more accessible have spot for a smoker the fryer can go outside and as opposed to trying to blow up the the inside all the time that stays outside so that's my area that I get to uh, organize here soon and I know that you've got quite an impressive outdoor kitchen setup at your place like you mentioned earlier where you do a lot of your canning talk to me about the setup that you have going for your outdoor kitchen yeah, so uh, with uh, before before I get into all of it, uh, it when we're having since we're gonna have propane out there, fire extinguishers. I haven't Bingo. had an issue, but I don't want to have one. Have fire extinguishers. Um, so yeah, so I have a uh, three burner cast iron um, propane stovetop that actually my grandparents used to drag out west in the 70s and 80s on elk and mule deer and antelope hunts to. Um, they'd, they'd shoot deer and they'd actually be out there so long that they'd can it while they were, uh, up, you know, at camp. Um, and then I have, yeah, they're, my grandparents are pretty hardcore. Um, (laughs) they have, uh, and then I have my grill out there and then I have another single burner stove that's kind of separate. It's a little bit bigger and more stable for my pressure canner. Um, so I'll stew my tomatoes on the three burner. And then the other one uh, is a little bit larger because a, a pressure canner, I've got an All-American 921, and it's just a, it's a big, heavy steel pressure canner, and it's just a solid thing, so it needs a little more stable footing. I have a three-basin sink that I uh, got from the scrapyard. It came out of someone's milk parlor at a, you know, long-defunct dairy farm, I imagine. 
Uh, I've got a bunch of totes with storage out there for, for jars. And then the only running water I have, I don't have hot running water, I just have cold running water. But obviously with the burners, I can have that going pretty good. Um, and then I have, uh, most importantly, I have a very comfortable camp chair and I actually have a hammock in there. And because, you know, it takes 25 minutes or so for certain things. And then there's a perfect time for a nap. Um, I, can, I have my smoker out there at certain times of the year. And then I'm setting up a spot. I'm moving all my brewing equipment out of there, uh, my beer and wine making stuff, so I can put in a pack and play next year for the little rascal to be out in the outdoor kitchen with me. Um, and then kind of over, it's just a set, like on a flat, like a stilt building, kind of over the edge of a hill so that the water drains away. Oh, excuse me. And uh, it's fairly bug proof. Um, I wouldn't say perfectly bug proof. But I did hard, we did hardware cloth all the way around and then bug screen on the outside of that. I need to button up actually the bottom because it's wood wood floor. So um, bugs can get through there. This year hasn't been too bad with mosquitoes. Um, I can throw a citronella candle in there if need be. I also have a rack in there that I'll, well, I hang garlic when I pull my garlic in July because it's shaded but breezy. So the garlic won't be beaten in the sun, but it'll kind of dry out and cure. And then if I, uh, you know, slaughter, uh, you know, young lambs or goats or whatever, I can hang those in there rather than in my, it, you know, in my barn, I've got spots for like a few deer, but if I get more than a few or I'm doing several lambs or whatever, I can hang them in there. And it's a little tight at that point, but it still works out pretty well. Good deal. Good deal. Man, this is just a, yeah, do all little lean to that's out there. It doesn't sound yes. little at all, actually. It sounds like Mecca right there. I want to, I want to come see this thing in person. It's not that huge, but it's just set up. It's just set up pretty well um, to be, to be pretty efficient. And it, it really is, it's under some trees. It really is like, I do not have a bad time out there. It feels like I'm working kind of, but it's a pretty relaxing way to spend a Sunday. You know, most years I'll have tigers on the radio out there having a few pops and getting some canning done. It's just it's not too bad. That's good deal. There's a group I belong to on Facebook and the whole thing is like barbecue shacks. And I know yours would fit right into some of the pictures and setups that these guys have. Although there is a few guys down in Texas where, I mean, these things are nicer than my house. Like there's a pool table in there, there's TV like there might be one small smoker in the corner. It's like, wait a minute. I thought this was barbecue shacks yeah. going on here. No, I like how every bit of your Those boys space... in Texas have a... Uh... Uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? or have some show topic ideas, email us at huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. So recently, you've also joined the Hunt to Eat team. Congratulations yeah. on on that. Tell us, okay. tell us about what Hunt to Eat is. It's not just a clothing company. 
I mean, I think that's where its roots started out, but it's it's far it's far bigger than that now. Yeah, um, you know their their slogan, their their sub slogan is community, real food, and and conservation, um, and really that's what it's all about. Uh, actually, it's on my shirt. Yeah, it's on my shirt. Um, so yeah, that's that's what it's all about, and they're definitely more than a clothing company. I mean, they sell T-shirts, but you know, when you talk to the other ambassadors and uh, Mating, the, the gentleman who, who runs it, it's really about more than that to them. And they really live the life and try to kind of spread the ethos that they believe is important. Uh, and that's kind of what drew me to them, you know, quite, quite a while ago. Um, I, I might have been early adapter of some of their clothes. I, you know, I, I don't know where I saw them, probably on social media or something. And the message just really got through to me. That's just how I live my life. Uh, I'm a big advocate of using, you know, I, I respect, um, honestly, I respect my plants. I respect my livestock that I raise, everything I hunt. And so when it's time for me to consume it, I utilize as much of it as possible and try to, you know, make it like, an, I guess, an honorable or do it, do it justice in the fact that it will no longer have life. And I tried to spread that ethos to really everybody. I mean, that's uh, like with my Instagram, uh, I kind of work hard at it, even though it's fun. Uh, but all I do is try to spread that message. And, you know, and, and that's why being a part of Hunt Eat was kind of a cool deal. Uh, when they approached me about it, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely on board. Um, it's a company that I, I really back their their message, I guess. Yeah, and it is. It's like just your lifestyle and their message and their lifestyle they have, they do. They seem to just mesh right in uh, together. They recently had a rebranding um, that has the field knife and the chef's knife is their, mm -hmm. their, their, uh, their logo now. Talk to me a little bit about what that means. What are they trying to portray there by having those two knives like seemingly both do it all uh blades but at the same time they each represent a different part of what hunt to eat is all about right uh so it means a couple of things but the i guess the when you distill it down it's that part of part of your life is in the field harvesting whatever it is you're going to harvest hence the the field knife the skinning knife uh and then but that is no more important uh, to, to the kind of people we want to communicate with or they want to communicate with um, than the kitchen part, the, the chef's knife. Um, it just, uh, a wall hanger is cool, but it's not really, you know, the, the, what the brand is all about. It's more about, you know, bringing that home and, and not just, you know, if it's just for you, it's just for you. But uh, most of the people that, that I'm kind of close with uh, it's about sharing it with family, with friends, with whomever, getting it with new, you know, bringing it with new people. Um, I did, uh, there's a, a nursery, you know, plant nursery, plant store uh, locally here that I'm, I'm close with. And as a, they asked me to do a cook-off, a meatball cook-off. Well, they've asked me to do it for the last couple of years. I've done it for the last couple of years. Um, like a, just a charity for, you know, local um, food pantry and for seniors getting food and 
so I've done some venison. I've done some kind of oddball stuff every year. Well, this year I just rolled with it and I, I squirrel hunt a preposterous amount. And so the, the week or so before I went out and I laid down, uh, I, I think I ended up using 10 fox squirrels, something like that. And then I cut it with, uh, I don't remember, a small percentage of pork so they'd stick together. I actually deboned all the fox squirrels and I, and I made uh, a bunch of squirrel meatballs. And I got to tell you, they were pretty darn good. And, you know, most of those people, I wasn't sure if I'd leave there with a crock pot full of uneaten meatballs that I would be eating later that day. Because a lot of these folks are, you know, not that, you know, they're city, they're city folks. They're, let's just say most of them had never eaten squirrel before that day. And I told them what they were. And, you know, and part of it is you eat with your eyes first. And you looked at these meatballs and they looked pretty darn good. You know, they were... They were uh, barbecue with some sesame seeds. They, they looked good, uh, like an Asian barbecue. So they saw them, and they're like, well, you know, Jonah probably wouldn't kill me. How bad can they be? And <laughs> honestly, I, had, I got some pretty good reviews of people I was surprised even tried them. And, and that's kind of what it's all about to me is now those people, I mean, I, I doubt that they're all going to be out with me squirrel hunting this fall, but at least it's on their radar as, as something they could consider and that maybe – not every guy who go or gal who goes squirrel hunting is just some, you know, goofball hillbilly that we actually like are for people too, man. And we're happy to <laughs> share. people too. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I did a stuffed uh, yeast roll. So I made, uh, basically, I call them bushy tail buns. And it was, I had the, mm-hmm. I had onion and I had basically, um, stewed squirrel meat inside there so i pre-cooked it but then stuck them in the buns and baked yeah. them and yeah that that caught a lot of people off guard i mean they really really liked eating it and they're like wait a minute you said this was squirrel that was in there? yeah and you know i think i won a few people over but i love the idea of a squirrel meatball do you start do you debone those out raw meat you didn't stew those at first you just went and made a ground uh- yeah, I deboned them. Uh, I, I chilled them and deboned them raw. Actually, then I made uh, with the rest of the the bones and whatever I couldn't get off there. I actually uh, roasted that and made squirrel stock, and and pressure canned that. So I have a whole bunch of jars of squirrel stock in my freezer. To, my 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 stock collection in my freezer is pretty. Or my I'm sorry, not my freezer. My pantry is pretty weird. Because uh, there, there's squirrel, there's woodchuck, there's some weird labels on, on there, but it's great soup starter. Or, or honestly, I'll just do like a um, egg noodle. I'll make some homemade egg noodles, or I'll even store bought whatever, and just throw a little bit of that in there. And you know, if I want dinner in ten minutes, that's dinner in ten minutes. You know, that kind of thing. Good deal. I am going to hold the train here for a second because I one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, and you just mentioned it, was woodchuck. You got woodchuck stock in there. Uh, living up next to my parents' farm, there is umpteen hundred opportunities to take woodchucks. And we do as best a well, or as good a job as we can. We've got a lot of pole barns on the property. And one thing about woodchucks is they love to burrow right next to posts. And it's just, things start falling apart and you got to get them out of there. They're just an unwanted critter in certain areas. And I know for woodchucks yeah. in your, your neck of the woods, they're going after your goods. They're going after the garden. So that's sure. how you end up with them. Talk to me about eating a woodchuck because I feel like I've got a lot of lost opportunity. I've taken out way too many and then thrown them to the compost pile. 
And then to find out, like, wait, wait, these are just like twenty pound squirrels that I can eat. They are they are just like a twenty pound squirrel. They they taste like a mix between like squirrel. They have a little bit of that wild, you know, squirrel taste, and then like a dark turkey meat is how I describe it, I guess. Uh, and they're really they're really good, man. They're they're better than wild rabbit for sure, no doubt. They're better than wild rabbit, and they're just as easy to clean. I clean them the same way. Um, they actually have uh, a video on the Hunty YouTube channel, um, and maybe it's on their Instagram too. I think it's on their Instagram on, on or their Instagram TV on how to butcher a woodchuck. And ten minutes, no problem, ready to go. I I use a piece of pea cord, and I do just like I would a squirrel or a rabbit. Um, I do. You know, I, I use a 17 HMR or a 17 WSM, uh, and I'm a fan of you know headshots. You don't want to, you don't want to mess. But they're they lend themselves to the headshot because the first thing that comes out of that hole is a big old woodchuck melon, and they look around and it could be just curtains right then. Uh, and they really they really are good. Um, my wife likes them. Honestly, they're my father-in-law. He's his favorite thing that I cook is probably porcupine. And then his second favorite is woodchuck. He likes things that are fat and slow. And they, you know, they, they don't move very fast. They're out there eating beans. I mean, this one, I just got one this week that had made a residence in my, I've got a Mastodon garden, my lower garden. Um, it, and it had snuck under the hot wire there and was just chilling and ate the bottoms of a couple of my tomatoes. I'm like, are you kidding me, bro? And so, you know, went down there and, took care of him and he's in the freezer i'm gonna make some uh pulled woodchuck uh you know do some fajitas or something with him this week that's awesome that's awesome i love it that not only does your garden bring life to plants it brings life to animals and then in return that then life goes into your sustenance as well you know you're gonna you're gonna enjoy the summer bud but harvest harvest is a coming (laughs) yeah yeah, turn salads into stews. <laughs> That's great. You you keeping the pelts? Are you gonna end up doing a like a wood instead of the uh, the two squirrel or the, excuse me the two raccoon uh, Daniel Boone hat? Are you gonna do a woodchuck hat? You know i I don't know that I, I don't know that I've ever tanned one. I I keep quite a few of my pelts and do tan them. Um, just do like a self tan. And most of them just end up hanging in my barn or my my little, uh, you know, one of my sheds or something. Uh, there are a few in the house. There are a few around here, I think. But uh, I have never tanned a woodchuck pelt, I don't think. They're, it's stout. It would be, the only, it'd be, uh, I don't know if you ever skinned or tanned, uh, like uh, raccoons and, and coyotes. Woodchuck have kind of that same greasy, almost like a bear fat. Um, uh-huh. Actually, this, this last woodchuck I is very fat very fatty i was actually thinking about rendering some of the fat and making like some woodchuck grease it's on my radar i don't know if i'll get it done but it's on my radar i am definitely following woodchuck grease i'm on board with that that's awesome if it doesn't taste good i can definitely shine my boots with it (laughs) there you go i'm thinking one one specific pan one specific cast iron that's gonna have to be sole woodchuck yeah yeah (laughs) Well, hey, now I'm getting into the crescendo. I'm getting into the nitty gritties here of uh, of our show. We're coming here to the the bottom end of it, and it's my two dish breakdown. My mm. first one is it's pretty it's a softball. It's gonna be just tossed up to you, but um, just seeing all the stuff that you grow on your on your property, 
where you're using not just, I mean, stuff in the rows, but you've really created this total permaculture where it's year-round harvest. What is your favorite garden dish that you pull out and how do you prepare it? Is one dish, or are we talking uh, like a meal? Should I do is just one dish? Okay. I'm going to make it tough. I'm going to uh, say one I dish. You got to pick one. My go-to. Oh, oh man. Uh, then it is, uh, it's probably, it involves garden and hunting. So it would be my venison neck roast. And in that I do, I also have uh, stewed tomatoes, potatoes from my garden, um, sweet peppers, occasionally hot peppers if I'm feeling rowdy, uh, garlic and onions. And it'll be a whole bone in venison neck from a dough. And I'll let it warm to approximately room temperature, cast iron skillet, butter garlic, uh, put a rub on the on the neck roast, sear it all the way around on there, and kind of cook that. Just brown it just enough to get that rub in. Um, a uh, Dutch oven, cast iron Dutch oven, onions in the bottom. Put that uh, venison neck roast on there, and then I will saute a fair bit of garlic and onions and sweet peppers in that same cast iron skillet with some butter. And I will put stewed tomatoes in that Dutch oven and to about halfway, three quarters of the way. So just a little bit of that neck roast exposed. And then I'll pour the peppers, onions, and garlic and butter over the top of it, low and slow, like 275 for six or seven hours. Absolute crowd pleaser. Um, it, it is to die for. And, and that's one of the things that I, I see people leaving the neck in the field they are out of their cotton picking minds because if I could take two things out of every deer, it'd be the neck and the heart are my two prime cuts of, of any whitetail. And half the people leave those out in the field and it makes no sense to me. Uh, if they've obviously never had my bone in venison neck roast or, you know, with all my garden fresh veggies and or they'd be all over it. Gotcha. Yeah. I love that veggie mix that you just said. You said about five or six different produce are going right into that dish. I can't even imagine the richness that you're getting just from that, uh, the broth that's being made, both with the tomatoes, the garlic, the peppers that are in there. That sounds awesome. And you go neck in. That's uh, that's surprising in the oh, era oh, of CWD. Sure. Um, so I I wouldn't I wouldn't do it with an untested. That that is true. And I've been doing this recipe since well before CWD. I would absolutely freeze that deer until your test comes back and and not with a you know with an untested deer uh, i also usually put uh i forgot to say summer squash in there which i will freeze in chunks and that cuts the acidity a little bit of the oh. tomatoes like that the acid helps break down the meat but then the summer squash uh cooks down and cuts the acidity and it really comes out not acidic at all almost sweet and then the zip on the meat and I, i'll use usually like Tony Saturays or some Cajun and, and a few herb blends. Um, but it, it really, it really works together well. But yeah, that, uh, I, I'm glad you pointed that out. In the CWD era, that's something you certainly have to be conscious of. Uh, and I've, I don't know that I'll stop doing that, but I won't do it with an untested deer, that's for sure. There you go. 
Yeah, I, I do a whole process now where it's when I process my deer, it goes straight into the box, sealed up. I don't even get to look at it. Tenderloins in the whole bit. And then yeah. it's like, once you finally get that test results back, then it's then it's Christmas morning. You get to open it up and you leave the tenderloins right sure. on top. Um, I'm glad to say next year. Yeah, my like, labeling's gotten a lot more vigilant. <laughs> yeah, none of these freezer treasures in there where you're like, no, what, was, no. what was this supposed to be again? So yeah. I'm with you on the uh, the more work cuts. You go for the neck. See, I'm a big shank guy. That's where I'm at. People will. Oh yeah. They'll cut those up and they'll go right into grind. And I'm like, you're missing out. Missing yeah. out on. I've done a, a barbacoa with that. I think I I pull oh. off of Hank Shaw real heavy when it comes to his uh, barbacoa recipe. But that one, or even I do a a black pepper asobuco where I, I steer away from tomatoes and do more of a wine black pepper yep. on that oh my goodness it just I, I'm salivating just thinking about it right now oh for sure and the uh, shoulder blades another one I do I keep bone in shoulder blade uh, and I'll do like a mushroom roast with that and just pulling out that clean beautiful shoulder blade and tossing that aside as the meat falls away oh man <laughs> My last one. Now this is your turn to make the entire meal. We're going like starting off all the way to the finish. And this is, I'm, I'm doing the date night for you. So the little kid, the little kid is not here yet. You are still in the dating stage, the honeymoon stage with the missus. Uh, you are cooking and you want to make this in-house date night very special you want this to go just right what is the wild game meal that you are going to prepare oh man if it won't be that neck roast um i do a lot of bluegill I, i'm gonna start with i will do a garlic scape uh charred garlic scape pesto with some homemade bread for an appetizer i'll give her something to do while while i'm cooking and 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 having some wine um and then i will say um honestly bluegill uh pan fried bluegill and i will do on the side roasted beets and um uh sauteed uh swiss chard and kale with garlic my beets i can them i pull them out strain them toss them in sesame oil with some pretty spicy, like some, uh, really some, uh, and that's the other thing I dry a lot. I'll dry a lot of my hot peppers and I'll do like a hot pepper crumble on those mm. and throw that in the broiler. And so it caramelizes, has an awesome sweet and heat. And I will do pan fried skin on, uh, not filleted bluegill, gutted finned, pan fried cast iron skillet, bluegill. And uh, that that wonderful wife of mine is not with me for my money. That is for sure. So it must be my cooking. It's it must be, be my your cooking. cooking. I don't know. You're a pretty handsome and devil over I, there too. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, it's hard, hard to say under this beard and this COVID hair. But uh, uh, and then I'm I'm big on uh, well, especially now. Uh, she's big on desserts, and uh, you know, being about seven and a half months pregnant um big on desserts and tarts so i do a foraged black raspberry and blueberry crumb top tart or pie that'll knock your socks off it is uh homemade you know homemade crust and um brown sugar black raspberries blueberries 
and then I do a uh, yeah, it's a granola um, and brown sugar crumb top on there. So there's no dough on top, and it is you know I, I don't like tooting my own horn, but it is pretty darn good. Uh, nieces, nephews, mom, sister, wife, uh, definitely my mother and father-in-law, all all approved all the way around. Yep. Nice. Because oh, you got to end it with dessert. You've got to end it with dessert to. for sure. Got to. That sounds like a home run there. Now this is all homemade wine. You mentioned you were a wine winemaker at this time too. You you throwing yeah. out your special wine on this, or is you? Oh, you, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, my glass would probably be fortified a little bit, but uh, uh, hers would be standard. But yeah, I do a lot of fruit wines, and part of that is just that I I I really like to forage, and then I grow. We grow quite a lot of blueberries, black raspberries, um, and raspberries, and. I like to forage for other, other berries, wild berries. And so I have to do something with them. So I make quite a few pies and give that away, but it's really good to bottle it too. Uh, and it's, and it's a pretty easy way to store it. And, you know, uh, I can do kind of fun mixes. My best, my best one I've done so far was, it was just called the clean out the freezer. And it was like 10 different random fruits and random uh, measures. I have no idea what was in there. I only have a few bottles left and it's the best wine I've ever made. And it can't be, it can't be reproduced. I feel like I'm looking for the fountain of youth and I've already seen it, but I can't find it again. Yeah. It's, it was there and you have it. no idea. That sounds like a college party, but instead of you having the down. alcohol made, it was the pre-alcohol that you were putting in there. It, it, that was basically it. It was like in, it was a December thing, I think. And I just shot a deer and I didn't have room in the freezer. So I had to clear about that much stuff out of the freezer. And uh, <laughs> so I just threw it all into a, I mean, I measured it and everything and put the appropriate amount of sugar and I, you know, I did it correctly, but it was kind of a random assortment of fruits. And I, I don't know that I can reproduce. I think the mulberries might've been the secret thing. I ah, think that they, you. they might've been the secret ingredient. Now, is that a passive fermentation where you actually bottle it up and then put it on the shelf? Or is it an active fermentation where you're making a mash and letting it ferment there, and then you go through the distillation process there. Uh, it, it's it's an active, so um, I'll put it in a in a fermentation bucket. You know, it's basically a six gallon pail. Um, smush it up a bit, add you know sugar, water, let it work with with the yeast, and uh, once it's done bubbling, then I'll do it in the secondary into a carboy and go from there, and then you know. It, settles down and you know then you clarify let it clear i i don't add any clarifiers i just let it go because i'm not that thirsty i can wait and it'll clarify itself over time uh gotcha. and then and then bottle it from there yep is it a huge difference i know a lot of guys brew beer in their garage is it a huge difference between brewing beer or is it just like a few minor tweaks that are in between as far as the production of it it's pretty similar honestly uh, fruit wines, I think, are easier than beer. I, I brew beer, too. Um, that, you know, with fruit wines, there's no heating for the most part. It's really it's really quite a lot simpler um, than most beers, in my in my opinion. And not, not that I've made a ton of beers, but I've probably made, I don't know, half dozen or so different kinds. And I think that fruit wines are, are a bit easier. Gotcha. It's not intimidating at all. It's If you follow the directions, if you have beer making equipment, you can definitely make fruit wines. Oh, good, good. There's just something else you can add to your repertoire at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, extra credit, just, I mean, hot off the press. Again, before we got on, I saw 
that you were already experimenting with some kid food that you're going to be serving up to your, to your new little one. And this is some homemade fish sticks. Now, these aren't fillets that you cut into strips. You went the full distance and ended up uh, processing out the meat as far as do you, you put it through a grinder or you did the food processor on this? Uh, through a grinder. So these were actually um, suckers from the spring sucker run. And uh, I put them in, I mean, they, they've been in the freezer. Um, but then I thawed them to some degree. They were chilled, kind of frosted. Um, and then ran them through the grinder with, uh, with some crackers. And then, you know, it, it was a paste, essentially. I added a few eggs. And I added some Parmesan cheese and a little bit of seasoning. And they, they were, and I put it back in the freezer so that it was fairly firm. And then just put them onto cookie sheets and just kind of molded them into little fish sticks and tossed them into, uh, or tossed them in panko, um, in, in panko. And they're fairly flat, fairly square. And they look more or less like fish sticks. And they, they tasted honestly pretty darn good. I just baked them just like, you know, I probably haven't had a fish stick. I probably had some in college, but it's been a while since then. Uh, <laughs> I have not had a fish stick in quite a while. But as I recall, these, you know, comparing that memory to what I ate today, these were, these were a bit better. Gotcha. They were certainly more like actual food. I, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's a go off on too far tangent, but a lot of what I see people eat isn't food. It's more a uh, food-like substance. And it's just a, a you know, whatever, over-processed food. And so I'm, you know, that's part of my deal with real food is whatever you're going to eat, have it be actual food, like one step away from whatever it originally was, basically. And I would imagine, and maybe I'm totally off base, but I think most fish sticks are probably pretty heavily processed, probably full of preservatives. And this isn't, this is just some fish I caught, ground, boom, and, and they're pretty good, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, I guess the thing is, if my kid never has uh, store-bought fish sticks maybe maybe those are way better but they won't ever know what they're missing because I don't plan on feeding that to them. <laughs> it's when they go over to their buddy's house they're like this isn't a fish stick fellas yeah. you don't know what a fish yeah. you need a sucker stick that's what you need your dad your dad didn't even kill that fish stick what's going on exactly <laughs> well Jonas this has been an awesome time to get a just chance to to talk with you um get a chance for my listeners to kind of just glean a little information from you they're going to be hungry, not even, not just uh, actual physical hunger, but hunger for some knowledge, hunger for where they can find out more about what you're doing and how they can help bring some permaculture into their garden, uh, making this a little bit more sustainable. Where can we find you and uh, where can we find um, information that's going to help us out? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm on Instagram uh, at Mighty Musquatch. Uh, it's a mythical Northern Michigan creature that you're looking at right here. Um, <laughs> slightly mythical. Uh, so yeah, Mighty Musquatch on Instagram is probably the easiest way. Uh, I'm also, um, on Hunt to Eat on their Instagram and I have videos on their YouTube and they have lots of information made by people who are, you know, also, uh, pretty, pretty skilled in this kind of thing. Probably a lot of them are more skilled than I am. So, you know, their Instagram and, and YouTube and just on their website, they have some pretty cool, um, you know, blogs, lots of cool recipes. Uh, I just did uh, a snapping turtle processing video for them that's on their YouTube. 
that quite a few people uh, checked out and had gave me some interesting questions on. Uh, I think a lot of people see snapping turtles and don't know what to do with them. And so I showed them how to break one down and turn it into sandwiches. But yeah, so yeah, Mighty Musquatch on Instagram or the any of the Hunt to Eat forums um, or YouTube channels, things like that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jonas or um, Jonah. Just hold on for for just a second. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna send our listeners on out, folks. This has been a great talk, and especially as we're getting here into basically that heavy harvest for gardeners. Um, if you're looking to bring some of that into your own life, check out. Uh, Check out the Muddy Masquatch. Check out Jonas and what he's doing and the folks from Hunting Eats. And whether it's uh, in the kitchen or even in the garden where you're harvesting, make sure your, uh, your tools are up to par and always make sure that your knives are sharp.